0: Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Lucy Houndsome. Women have always written science fiction. From the genre's infancy, women have been at the forefront – Despite our presence, we have been systematically written out of the genre's history. But today, we are talking to a science fiction academic, Lisa Yazik, about how and why this happened and whether we have made any positive steps to rectify this situation in recent years. So Lisa, before we get cracked on into the the subjects, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Um, again, my name's Lisa Yazik, and I'm a professor of science fiction studies in the School of Literature, Media and Communication at Georgia Tech. And I study science fiction as a global language, and I'm really interested in the way that we can use science fiction to talk about our experiences with science and technology and society to each other across centuries and continents and even cultures.
0: I mean, yeah, this is just so <laughs> cool. I mean, <laughs> It's just yeah, me the the kind of the nerd who grew up grew up like watching sci-fi and just living and breathing sci-fi is just it's really cool to meet someone who actually gets to study this day in day out. It's it's fantastic.
1: Yeah, thanks. It's really exciting that I get to do it, and it's the same thing. Like one of my very first memories in the world is watching Star Trek with my parents. So it's pretty great that now I get to do things where I get to talk about Star Trek all the time. Essentially, so.
2: Oh, my God, uh, yeah. you're going to be so at home on this podcast. <laughs> oh, <good. laughs>
0: Yes, Lucy often has to uh, keep Charlotte and I from talking about Star Trek just, like, all the time. So
1: I <laughs> roll. Okay, well, we'll make sure not to spend the entire time doing that then. Lots to talk about, lots of women elsewhere in all kinds of media, so we can do this.
0: Yes. All right, but science fiction has often been, like, represented as a boys' club and... But you have, in particular, studied and written extensively about the history of women writing science fiction. If women have always been present in the genre, why do more people not know about this? Why do we just think about the men who have written science fiction?
1: Right. I, I mean, I think we, we do think about women in the genre, but only like at certain periods of time, right? Like, everyone's willing to admit that Mary Shelley is... is one of the founders of the genre, and certainly one of the, the, I think, the first author to write a commercially successful science fiction story. And um, and then, you know, you get, you fast forward to the 1970s and uh, the revival of feminism, and all of a sudden you had authors like Ursula Gwynn and Joanna Ross and Margaret Atwood. And then people are like, oh, wow, women write science fiction. And of course, just this past year, N.K. Jemison, right, became the first author of, of any gender or race to win three Hugos in awards. So, now we see women in the genre, but there's this huge gap between like 1818 and say 1970 and I got really interested in where all the women were, so I started looking around and it turns out sure enough they they were there. We've always had women in the genre. Um from the very beginning, women uh, constituted about 15% of all science fiction producers and we know that by the time they started doing readers polls in the 1940s and 50s that women counted for at least 40% of the readership as well. And today, um, I'm not sure where we are in readership, but I know that the numbers of women in science fiction have doubled. So we're at about 30, 35% now. Um, but I think the reason that we forget that there were so many women in between Shelley and um, the revival of feminism, and then the the growth of feminist science fiction, is because women were sometimes writing, we weren't looking for the kinds of fiction they were writing. And then we also can't find it because it didn't always get anthologized, right? It's it's really hard. The early science fiction community was all magazine science fiction, and those magazines often got thrown away or they didn't last, they weren't preserved. So if you don't have access to a university with a huge science fiction collection like I do, it's really hard to find these women. And then, you know, it's exacerbated by the fact that even if you have the anthologies, a lot of the early anthologies were written by people who didn't necessarily include Women in those anthologies for one reason or another.
0: Yeah, I mean it, it's interesting because obviously you have the the men who are writing in those, those pulp magazines yeah. Yeah. that that didn't disappear. People still know right. about that, and it's right. It's just frustrating. But then, mm. I mean, I don't know if there's anything in it, but things like James Chiptree, you know, perhaps people right. don't necessarily know that that
1: was a pseudonym, right? For instance. Right. I, I think James Tiptree, right? That one's probably well, pretty y- well known. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, one of the interesting things I found is that most women did not use male pseudonyms. Most women went by really decidedly feminine names, and and usually their own names. Although sometimes they would also take other names, like Lilith Lorraine, which is a lovely name. She was born Mary Maud Dunn, and so you can see why she switched her name. But really, what I found is most women did not masquerade as men, and Often women's pictures were printed in the magazines. In the very early magazines, authors had sketches of themselves with their draw, with their, um, with their stories. So, and even if somehow you missed that, the editors were quick to correct, um, readers who mistook female writers for male writers. But what did happen, and that was very early in the genre, like in the 20s and 30s, right? So right after universal suffrage and the first wave of feminism, and I think a lot of people were really sort of on board with, thinking about how the future might be female as well as male. and But then in the late 30s and 40s, you have this huge backlash against feminism. And that's the time when the first science fiction anthologies are being put together. And those were put together by a, a younger group of men who really you do find kind of participated in that feminist backlash rhetoric. right? John Campbell, who swore that no woman could write science fiction, even though he'd been publishing in the same magazines as women did. Um, you know, he had, a, that's how Judith Merrill got her start in her career. He told her no woman could write a story and she said, yeah, I bet I can write a story. You'll like it so much. You'll, you'll beg me for more. And, and that's exactly what happened actually. But, um, as those anthologies were getting put together, women, we know there are anecdotes, um, and, and, that, that women have told that they were cut out of the magazine. So Leslie F. Stone, who was one of the pioneering science fiction authors, uh, she rolled with Hugo Gernsback and uh was really popular with people she wrote these big crazy space operas often she had been invited to be to include a story in one of the first big science fiction anthologies and there was supposed to be a party uh, for everyone who was going to be in the anthology and she was sick and she couldn't go so she sent her husband and the editor said oh you must be leslie stone and he said no no that's my wife i'm just here for her as a placeholder and they were like, oh, hmm, hmm, that's very interesting. And then within two weeks, she had a letter saying, yeah, we've decided to drop your story from the anthology. And she mm. said really hard not to put two and two together on that one. Yeah, understand. Yeah. So yeah, so you really see that. So I think we lose that first generation of women in the 20s and 30s because those male anthologists weren't including them. And then, of course, you get another generation of women to start writing after World War II, so late 40s and then through the 50s and even early 60s. And some of them get anthologized, but not as many as you would expect, and certainly not in the proportions that they were producing fiction. And interestingly, part of the issue there, and this is going to sound kind of crazy, but bear with me for a moment, I actually think has to do with what happened when the first group of women started putting anthologies together, So what you'll see is like when Pamela Sargent and Joanna Russ and um, Virginia Kidd were putting anthologies together, they were often thinking about what was going on in science fiction at that moment with the rise of feminism. And so they would acknowledge that there had been women writing beforehand um, and who were doing great work with character and theme. But because they weren't really writing in this same overtly feminist mode that was super popular, they weren't necessarily even making it into those next set of women's anthologies. So I think that that's really interesting as well, because it's easy to say, yeah, I get why men would leave the women out. It's it's a little more interesting to think about, you know, that women might also have complex goals for their anthologies and that not all women's writing are necessarily going to fit into what the goals were for those first anthologies.
2: I find that really interesting that there's, you know, that it's <laughs> we we we're so easy to it's easy to jump on the kind of like oh well you know let's blame the men bandwagon for leaving right. women out and actually yeah. that it, it is more complicated than that you know and that there, yeah. there are. That, you know, there are people writing mm-hmm. in different time periods that have different um, right. themes and different, um, you know, like I, right. I, I understand that, you know, if they had an agenda and right. the earlier writing wasn't um, kind of reflecting that, that that's right. why they decided not to include them.
1: Right. So, right. And I think it's right. You can't do everything at once. So and, and I don't think it was malicious, like, aha, we're going to leave these people out. Well, it wasn't malicious, but it was not that the stories didn't necessarily fit the agenda, right? If you're writing about um, maybe military women of you know of the future, then stories about housewife heroines aren't gonna really fit with your theme. So I think we had to wait till we were in a moment where we've got a rich enough feminist tradition that we can continue to do that kind of feminist work where we're recovering all different kinds of women's writing and not necessarily I think that's one of the tricks is is you have to sort of open up and not necessarily expect it to fit what you think of as being feminist writing or even matching the kinds of concerns that we as women have today, necessarily. In the the
2: lost, and I use air quotes here, the lost work of female science fiction writers, um, were they writing in a similar style on similar subjects to their contemporary male writers? Or, you know, are there common themes to the works Mm -hmm. written by women? So
1: the answer to that is is yes to both, ultimately. So what we do find is absolutely women, especially between the 1920s when the first uh, genre magazines were coming together and then the 1970s with the revival of feminism, women, like men, were really there to build the genre. So in many ways, there's a lot more similarities than differences. Everyone kind of agreed that there were certain types of stories that were the kinds of stories that people wanted to tell. There was a general agreement about, you know, the character types and even about, like, how much romance you would include, if any at all, um, how we were going to differentiate science fiction from, say, the Western or the nurse novel. So people were really thinking about that. So in a lot of ways, you're going to see women are writing all the same things that their male counterparts do. Women, from the beginning, are writing environmental disaster stories. They're writing utopias. They're writing dystopias. They're writing space operas. Um, so there's really sort of no difference in that respect. What you will always or often see is that even as women are writing the same kinds of stories as men, they're maybe thinking about fleshing out their world in a little bit more depth than a lot of their male counterparts because they're not just building a public sphere where men are active. It's not just about the excitement of the launch pad and the laboratory, but they also will pay attention to... The potential drama of science and technology transforming the home and changing family relationships and changing women's roles in the world. So even in a great big space opera like Leslie Stone's Out of the Void, it just it goes on and on forever. It's a huge space opera. It goes all over the galaxy. They they free enslaved races. You know, it's it's really exciting. Um, People get kidnapped. People rescue each other. There's slaves, there's princes, there's princesses. It's a wonderful story. But my favorite part is a big chunk of the story, they're just stuck on the spaceship, and they don't have anything to do. So they spend their days having competitions to see who can roll the best cigarettes and who can wash the dishes the best. And it's a male-female team on the spaceship. <laughs> and it's great. So I love stuff like that. And you'll always see the women pay attention to food? How would food be transformed in the future? And they always imagine that food will be essences. And because women no longer have to chop wood and carry water and do food prep 16 hours a day, suddenly all these women in these stories are like, hey, I can be part of the Council of 12 too, and I can help lead the future. So I do think that's a difference you're going to see is that they tend to include women in their futures, and they tend to think about domesticity in their futures.
0: But like the quiet domestic sort of moments are what often give yeah. depth to a story so I think so like why why is that always seen as a negative when kind of women include this and it's it's kind of used uh, as a way to to look down on it like I, I always think of the mm-hmm. the How to Suppress Women's Writing by Joanna Russ right and, and in one of those um, you know the quotes on the cover it's like she wrote it but look what she wrote about the bedroom the exactly. kitchen her family
1: exactly. other women Yes. Yeah. well there was you know debate about how much of that to incorporate in the early science fiction community. Um, And and it was a debate that authors and editors and fans all carried out together. And some magazines and some groups of editors were much more friendly to this kind of work than others were. So from the beginning, Hugo Gernsback and the magazines he worked on were very open to women writers. Uh, Leslie Stone, she remembers that Gernsback, the way she puts it is he quite liked the idea of women invading his field. And so I think that's very sweet. And he wrote about how science fiction was for both boys and girls, and he was very aggressive about that eventually. So certain authors, and, and he, um, he, I think he knew Margaret Sanger, he ran um, birth control ads in an era when you weren't really supposed to do that. So, you know, I think that some people could see how feminism was part of that plan for a better future. But then there were other magazines with other focuses, and they just... The women didn't necessarily work equally with all the different magazines. They definitely worked with, with the editors who were more interested in those domestic subjects. But meanwhile, yeah, there were other play- magazines where people were like, we don't want to see this. Um, one magazine had this huge debate for, with fans for a long time about whether or not there should ever be kissing in stories. And that ended up leaking out and turning into an argument about whether or not there should be women in science fiction. And it's so interesting that within that thread, that somehow kissing and affection and sexuality somehow immediately gets alighted with all women and all kinds of writing um and and not didn't always happen there were plenty like i said of authors and editors and fans who were into it but you know isaac asimov said when he was 16 he wrote into the science fiction magazines and he said there should never be any such thing as a kiss in science fiction and he's like you know this is why i didn't get a date till i was 28 (laughs) and um so i think you also had a lot of boys who were maybe just not interested in it this has really bled over into fantasy and I see this a
2: lot Um, like how how many People, readers are still saying, oh, I don't want to read that because it's got romance or can you tell right. me this is a romance book? And then right. romance has become synonymous with female writers. And many yes. of me and my contemporaries are just fuming about this because how many, we like to keep saying it, how many of the major epic fantasies that have been written in the last 30 years do not have some kind of romantic plot line like they all do? And exactly. somehow these get overlooked, you know?
1: Yeah, it's really true. It's, it is. It's It's really um, interesting how how this happens and, and how that gets gendered. Because you're right, men write romances as well.
0: I mean, not to, you know, focus on Star Trek or anything, but I remember uh, as a kid when I sort of first got into the internet and was like finding, um, you know, other people talking about sci-fi oh this is so exciting and then I saw this thing about how oh there's no sex in space and blah 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 and I just finished watching like uh, um original series star trek I was like um there's a lot of sex in oh yeah
1: science fiction gets (laughs) super sexy. well it gets super sexy right in the 60s with like the sexual revolution and and a little bit the revival of feminism but mostly the sexual revolution for sure I mean star trek is such a sexual revolution show everyone's clothes are shockingly tight I'm like really, and how (laughs) many times is Kirk? And Kirk's shirt is always off him, right? (laughs) Always. But you know, it's funny. I teach the old Flash Gordon serials in one of my science fiction classes, and um, oh gosh, I'm going to lose his name now. the The guy who plays the hero in that um, he was an Olympic swimmer, and uh, was blonde, handsome guy. I when I show it, I'm always surprised. His clothes are off him all the time. It's so amazing, (laughs) and like, wow. Okay. Science fiction got so sexy, like I was saying, in the 60s, like Barbarella, right? Oh, Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. One of my dad's uh, (laughs) favourites.
1: Yeah. Um, And also the first science fiction porns show up then. So Flesh Gordon, for instance. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, definitely that moment that that happens a little bit, at least.
0: I mean, did that also happen in like the prose fiction or was that kind of
1: uh, kept to the realms of television and film? Oh gosh, no, it completely happened in science fiction too, right? In um you think of especially the stuff written by new wave authors like Sam Delaney and Harlan Ellison and Joanna Russ. Um, people are definitely writing about sex and women in particular are writing it about it in really interesting ways, right? They're thinking about what would it like to be an alien? What would it be like to have sex with aliens? What would it be like to use technology in our sexual and reproductive processes? How might that completely transform sexuality? So yeah, you see a lot of I think, really interesting stuff that starts happening at that time. Um, And then, you know, again, I think today, especially as we're seeing more queer authors and trans authors and people who are really willing to explore the different ways we can be um, sexual and and gendered in the world, that, again, we're seeing a renaissance in sexual science fiction. That sounds so weird, but but I, I do. I think we're seeing people... Experiment with sexuality in science fiction in very thoughtful ways.
2: I feel like saying educate me a bit because I I am like no I'm not as well read in science fiction um, as Meg and we've been talking about these kind of lost female writers. Um, okay. If you had to recommend a few uh-huh. to our listeners um, who who should we who should we go and dig
1: into? This is such a great question. So I'll just give like one or two from different time periods. So if you want to start looking at the pulp era, so that first moment when science fiction came together as a popular genre in the 20s and 30s. um, I think two of the best people to look at are Leslie F. Stone, who I've mentioned a couple times here, um, who, like I said, she wrote all the same kinds of stories men did, but she also wrote stories, as did many of those women, that were experimenting with feminine perspectives and, and really feminine concerns. And my favorite story by her is called The Conquest of Gola, and it's about what happens when men from Earth come and try to take over Venus, only to find there's a telepathic matriarchy there that really thinks they're ugly and stupid. And it's a great story. It basically invented the battle of the sexes in science fiction. And it's uh, it caused a furor when it came out. And she was a much-loved author when she wrote that. But she said, didn't matter that like universal suffrage had just happened. Boy, people got really up in arms. They really hated the idea that that, that men could get beat by women. But uh, she writes marvelous stuff, so I would completely recommend her. And uh, another fun person from that time period is Claire Winger Harris. She was actually the first woman published in the science fiction magazines. And she does a lot of cool stories. Um, one of my favorites, it's co-authored with uh, a male writer who was a doctor. I'm forgetting his name right now. Maybe David Keller. But it's called A Baby on Neptune. And the whole story is humans go to Neptune and they run into the Neptune natives and some crazy situation. They walk into some situation. They cannot figure out what's going on. And especially because the Neptunians, they're gas giants. So we're trying to figure out how to interact with gas giants. And it turns out we've walked into um, a labor scene and someone's having a baby and they have to figure this out. And I was like, that's really cool. So what an amazing way to wed together traditional feminine and traditional masculine concerns, right? Like this space story with a story about a baby being born. So that's wonderful. If you're interested in the golden age, that time in the 1940s and 50s when science fiction was really uh, coming together in in its modern form, I think marvelous people to look at here um, are Judith Merrill, who a lot of people may already know, but if you don't, she's certainly worth looking at. And even if you do, she's worth looking at again. She pretty much single-handedly invented domestic science fiction. So science fiction told from um, a housewife's point of view or maybe a child's point of view uh, within the house. And she's marvelous. And then um, my other favorite from that time period is a woman named Alice Eleanor Jones. She only wrote five science fiction stories before leaving for the much greener pastures of like the women's magazines where you got paid like 10 times as much to do your writing. But she wrote the most amazing and horrifying nuclear war story I've ever read in my life. It's called Created He-Them, and it's about forced marriage and reproduction and a woman who really, really, really hates her husband. And and they're getting ready to have baby number nine. And it's just it's an intense, crazy story. And um, if that didn't move people to go join the anti-war movement, I don't know what would have. But I think what's maybe my favorite thing about the Jones story is um, one of my student researchers learned this when he was helping me work on, on her was that she took the money from this. It was her first sale. And she bought herself like a really fancy designer party gown because she was an English professor. And she's like, there's no way in my life I'm ever going to be able to afford something this nice again. So I think it's funny that you would take a really terrible, tragic story about a horrible woman living in a horrible future and then go buy a party dress. I mean, yeah, Good. <laughs> Good for her. why not? Yeah, yeah. So, those are some of definitely my favorites from that time period. But, you know, I would remind people too that women did work in other mediums before then. So, um, a woman wrote Metropolis, the one of the first full length feature science fiction film, Seda von Harbaugh, um, who was Fritz Long's wife.
0: Wow. So, okay. You know, uh, how did yeah, I not know that? <laughs>
1: Doesn't it make sense then why the movie both stars, both, I mean, both the hero and the villain of the movie are a woman, right? It, it all yeah. makes so much more sense when you realize this. Yeah. So, and wow. um, Margaret um, Brundage who did the covers for weird tales. I don't know if you've ever seen those or not, but if you know, just go Google, weird tales, pulp covers, or Margaret Brundage, weird tales. And she did the most she single-handedly kept weird tales from going into bankruptcy during the great depression. She did very spicy covers. Um, and the one thing I'll give her is that she's equal opportunity in her spiciness. She's equally likely to have uh, dark skinned women as light skinned women on her covers. And, um, They're really great. Apparently, people, her covers were so popular that um, authors would write in purposely spicy or naughty scenes into their stories in hopes that they would get the Margaret Brundage cover. But she was cool. She was like, she was married to a homeless advocate, and she was part of the civil rights movement in Chicago in the 1920s. And she taught uh, young black kids graphic design because her theory was if she as a woman could make bank uh making right doing graphic design for the science fiction magazines that that anyone of any gender or race could also move into that kind of work and i think that that's so cool and you know we don't always think about the fact that these people had really exciting lives sometimes beyond the magazines
2: i'm looking at them now
1: and they are incredible <laughs> and they they are amazing sometimes they're very empowering and sometimes they're not but even the ones where women are being victimized, it's really interesting. Like if you look at their faces, it's they they rarely look all that stressed out about the situation, and it's amazing how often her characters break the gaze and look back at you, which is very interesting. She was actually trained as a commercial artist, and she had been trained in fashion design. And that was another thing is guys often hated like her covers and they'd be like, I don't understand why people are standing the way they are. She's always got them in fashion poses though. So someone's being sacrificed at the altar, but she looks like she's in a lingerie ad. It's kind of funny actually, but Hey, she got women on the front of pulp covers one way or the other. And, and again, sometimes it's like a woman holding a tiger and very empowered. So she did those ones less frequently, but um, apparently once a woman took over weird tales Um, her covers started really changing. And when she started working with female editors instead of male editors, suddenly her characters had a lot more clothing on.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And that was, yeah, isn't that interesting? And it was also in part, I think the company had been bought by a different publisher who also was interested in being a little less sleazy. But I just find it interesting that this new company then acquires all these women and they keep it, and they kept uh, Weird Tales going for forever, but it was really, it's an interesting effort. How much... Women were really behind a lot of the basic labor in the science fiction magazines. And, you know, that's something else I've found. We always talk about the authors and sometimes the artists, very rarely the poets. I could recommend a poet. Um, Do it. But, I mean, I, I have to admit, uh, uh, I've
0: never actually read any science fiction poetry
1: Yes, it's a thing. It's been a thing forever since the very first magazines had science fiction poetry in them. And interestingly, women were often hired um, to do women were way overrepresented in science fiction and weird poetry. Like that was like all way in for you. It was really very interesting. But my favorite, um, she was actually a fan poet. Her name was Tigrina. That was her pen name. And uh, her real name was Edith Ede. And Tigrina had been a member of the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society in the 1940s. She was friends with Forrest J Ackerman, the famous fan. And um, they had done work as she had edited a number of fan magazines, and she was a a fan poet. And she did a lot of weird poetry. And when you first read it, you're like, oh, my gosh, this is like the worst teenage goth poetry, because it's like, oh, I am a vampire, and I am all alone in the dark, and I have no one, oh, but I see you in the shadows across the street, and our hearts beat in time. Well, I guess they don't beat because they're vampires, but you know what I mean. Like, We are eyes locked, <laughs> and we are the same, and now we are in love, and you're like, gosh, what is with the really bad teenage vampire poetry? And then if you Google uh, Tigrina or Edith Ede, her real name, uh, or Lisa Ben, which was another one of her names she went by, you'll see, first of all, she was drop dead gorgeous and amazing. And second of all, the marvelous thing actually was that also Edith Ede was a lesbian and she was an out lesbian. This was the 1940s. It was World War II. A number of young women were coming out at that time. And um, she, so she was um, out in the science fiction community at this time and, and pretty well accepted. And then you start to realize all that bad vampire poetry is actually bad young teenage lesbian poetry, and that's actually pretty cool, right? Because what she's writing about is, like, these ways that these women can connect, these forbidden women. Ah, and, um, okay. yes, and then this is the best part. So she worked in the science fiction community for a while, and she had been an editor for science fiction fanzines. And then she decided during World War II... That she wanted to meet other young lesbians, and there were no, there were no, you know, newspapers or anything for lesbians at that time. So she decided she was going to start a, a lesbian news magazine based on what she had learned about magazine production as a science fiction fan. And in fact, Forrest Ackerman helped her, and she worked at RKO Studios at the time, and um, they didn't have enough work for the women, the secretaries during World War II. So she's like, "Hey, I'm going to start this lesbian news magazine, and I'm going to copy it here." And they're like, "Please don't tell us, but you do what you got to do." And she ran this, the first lesbian news magazine in the world, and then she went on to become one of the first lesbian journalists. And today, she's in the Gay and Lesbian Hall of Fame. And all the work she did to help establish queer journalism it was was because of things she had learned in the science fiction community. And I think that that's mind-blowingly cool. Uh,
2: yes, it's is kind that, of it reminds us that you know speculative fiction is it should be the kind of genre that pushes boundaries but i mean th- this is why we set this podcast up you know very often <laughs> yes. we found that it's actually quite retroactive um you know and there are plenty right. of kind of hang ups um so it's
1: really wonderful to hear
2: a story like that
1: yeah it's a big tent right and there are always these moments where things are I, I, where science fiction can be so progressive and really can lead us towards i think new and better futures and but it can also confirm the past and confirm the same, right? And that's really the tension we've seen, I think, especially um, in the last few years with Puppygate and and the Hugo scandals and Gamergate, right? Is is you see how big the tent is, and that there are really some people who want to see science fiction as only confirming the same and confirming mm-hmm. what they they believe to be true. The the thing that kind of am- amazes me about the sad puppies and that whole scandal is they keep saying. You know, women and people of color are ruining the fun of science fiction for everyone by insisting on issues of social justice and mixing up the genres. But if you go back and look at the editorials from the first science fiction magazines, that's exactly what the editors were asking the authors to do. I mean, Gernsback just gets out there. He's like, here are the popular genres. Mix them up. See what you can do with it. You know, it was the recipe for success. And we forgot that.
0: The idea that science fiction shouldn't like comment on social justice issues.
1: Again, watch Star Trek. What are you talking about? (laughs) Right. I mean, go all the way back to John Campbell. John Campbell, that was one of, you know, he and Robert Heinlein talked about that all the time. That was like a a fundamental part of good science fiction is that you have to have, like, the story has to be driven by a human problem and that problem has to be related to the science and technology. I mean, it, it has to do social stuff or you get well, you get like Ralph 124C, you get like a Hugo Gernsback, you know, utopia. It's kind of fun and G whiz, but it's fun to read once. It doesn't necessarily maybe bring you back. So,
0: Yeah. I mean, even Mary Shelley, Frankenstein was uh, a social commentary. I, they're, they're all oh social commentaries. Come on. <laughs> yes,
1: they really are. They are. Yeah. and And to say that somehow it's not, but I guess it's which society and what social issues do you want commented on, right? That's That's the thing. It's not that the people like the sad puppies like Vox Day or anything don't want social commentary. They want their social commentary. And perhaps they should recognize that.
0: It does make me sad when this is a genre that is completely open to possibilities and yet, say, a writer's coming up with a a brand new alien culture and they're just kind of reproducing male-female power dynamics that we know. right it's like it, come on be a bit more imaginative these are aliens there could be something completely different yes <laughs> yep yeah. well we always
2: joke about this you're saying oh it's much easier to for people to imagine dragons and mythical creatures mm-hmm. than emancipated women
1: <laughs> <in fantasy> world. <laughs> well that is true right absolutely i think i guess we're the rarer creatures um but and I mean, aliens, too, right? We're more likely to believe like that aliens are going to come down and attack the Earth than that a woman yeah. can successfully like lead a nation. Well, you guys are doing better at that than we are in the U.S., but... Um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: you put women in offices, at least. And again, it's a big step. Yeah. There's a lot of different women. We're, we're not all the same, right? I mean, that's the trick. We insist on being diverse, just like men.
0: We do. But I mean, you did mention like the, the sad puppies and all that. I mean, do you yeah. think it is much better for women in science fiction now, or are we still
1: fighting the same battles? You know, I think that is such a great question. And I, I've been pondering that one. I think it depends on what you mean by better and what parts of things we're talking about. If we're talking about are women more thoroughly represented in the science fiction community now, I'd say yeah. And even across media, we're even finally making inroads into like the film industry, which has been a tough one to crack for people, I think. Um, but are we still having to re-educate everyone, including ourselves on our own history because we keep losing it again and again? Yeah. I mean, this has been the sort of most interesting and most frustrating part of doing this recovery work is that a lot of people get angry and they're like, well, I already knew that because of X and Y and Z. And it's like, well, you and I and 10 other people knew it because these other books have been published in the past, but somehow it doesn't get purchased in the larger culture. And we don't remember as, as a collective, these things. So that's frustrating. And then, of course, I think that maybe in part because we live in a moment um, where politeness doesn't seem to be particularly valued in public discourse, that people who are indeed anxious about the presence of women or people of color or trans people in science fiction feel perhaps more free to speak their minds than they would have in the past. There's a huge difference between Isaac Asimov saying there should never be a kiss in science fiction, which is almost charming in a gross way, and someone else saying, let's all go throw acid in those feminist science fiction people's faces to stop them from writing the way they write. And it seems to me that as long as you're allowed to sort of levy those kinds of threats against other people, that no, we haven't really made progress, and maybe in some ways it's a regress. If nothing else, it certainly is a backlash. Maybe it's a backlash against the progress we've made. I think in my optimistic moments, I like to think that, that this is the last gasp of a dying regime and it's fighting desperately to hang on to whatever it can. And maybe that's the difference. Maybe the guys felt they could be more generous when they were less threatened and they weren't seeing as many faces. Right. I mean, I know for my Mm. students at tech, it's very easy for the boys to say, girls, of course, you should have the same rights that I do. But you take it any further than that and they get nervous.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's that's an interesting way to think about it, um, that now we are on slightly more equal footing, slightly um, that we are.
1: (laughs) I mean, I do think that's part of why you're seeing that backlash. Right. I mean, women weren't there were no awards for women to win at first, I guess. So that's that's different, too. Um, but at the same time, we have more of ourselves and more of each other. And we do have, uh, feminist friendly and just women friendly men and people around us. That's always been true in the community. I would actually say overall guys have been more friendly than not to women in the community, as long as you don't rock the boat too hard. Right. Um, but I think now we're seeing more of that. And because it's easy to easier to get access to the means of production, women can preserve their own histories. They can do things like, um, when the puppies say, women, you're destroying science fiction, everyone at Lightspeed Magazine can say, yeah, women are destroying science fiction. And we're going to do a special issue on that. And I think that's something you didn't see earlier. So when people in the 50s were getting mad about housewife heroin fiction and calling it heartthrob and diaper fiction, it wasn't like Anne McCaffrey and Judith Merrill and Carol Emshuler all got together and did a special issue on heartthrob and diaper fiction, right? Like they just, that wasn't in place, that kind of community. So I do think that's something that we have better now, that that we have these ways of connecting with each other. And we have the good luck of having lived through 40 years of more or less continual feminism. It goes in peaks and waves, but, but we've had more of that and we have more connection to people who've been fighting these fights. And I think that that helps a lot.
0: I mean, one of the obviously one of the reasons that we started this podcast was because we felt like people weren't talking about these issues. I right. mean, do you think that there are still like conversations that aren't being had in this, this feminist discourse around science fiction? Like, what do we need to be talking about that that people yeah. aren't talking about?
1: Um, I think a few different things. This is really that's another wonderful question. Um, I think that we have to find ways to connect with each other. I think that that's one thing. Um, we do talk about that within feminist discourse, but what are the ways that we, is it just feminist discourse alone in science fiction? Who are the other progressive minded folk we can connect with and, and what can we do there? I, I always want to see more of those conversations. Um, I want to see more conversation about non-binary authors, queer authors, trans authors, Um, You know, the idea that the future is female has a lot of traction again right now. I just had a book that I used for that that title. Right. And you see that T-shirt everywhere. But in my heart of hearts, I don't actually want the future to be female. Right. I want it to be for everyone. Yeah. And so and that's something that feminism, political feminism is coming to now. Right. The idea that feminism could be for everyone, that it's a, the radical idea that all people are equal. And, and, of course, there are fights about that within feminism. We've seen, for instance, older feminists who um, question, for instance, the presence of trans women, right? And and so even feminists have their debates. But we're having those debates and, and talking about these things, and I would love to see it talked about more in science fiction and just in literature in general. So
2: it's, it's the growth of intersectionality. Yes, that's a, yes,
1: Yeah, absolutely. So in short. It's not global. really
2: feminism if it's yes. not intersectional feminism.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know, um, I personally believe that, absolutely. Yeah. But also global stuff. I mean, and again, we're beginning to have these conversations, right? But like what a feminist needs in uh, in the United States is probably fairly similar to maybe what you as a feminist need in Great Britain, but whether or not it's similar to what, what feminists need in Japan or India or even Canada, I, you know, I, I think we need to keep having those conversations. And Um, Science fiction right now is beginning to sort of rediscover its global roots and to understand its global future. And I want to make sure we don't lose conversations about gender in that and, and that we bring those together. So maybe another kind or another level of intersectionality.
2: So, just to touch on um you know your job, which is uh, Megan said at the start, is really, really exciting that you get to actually study and teach science fiction as an academic discipline in a university setting. I think that's really great um, and I mean, I personally studied um, creative writing at university, but, you know, even now, and that, that was, God, I don't want to get on <laughs> 10 years ago, but yeah. even now I'm looking around and I'm seeing more uh, universities offering courses in speculative fiction, yeah. uh, which is amazing because we have come a really long way from that quite, quite traditional, you know, if you study English, you study English and it's the classics, yes. it's Shakespeare, it's Anglo-Saxon. Um, yeah. But, you know, this is, it's it's funny because we say I say science fiction is a new uh, genre, but of course it isn't really. It has it, you know, and, and fantasy yeah. is a really really ancient genre. Um, so what? Why do you think? Um. Why do you think it's important to
1: to bring science fiction into the academic setting? Oh my goodness, so many reasons. So I think the basic reason is that science fiction, at its best, teaches us to see the world from fresh perspectives that it surprises us, it challenges us, it shows us that intellectual engagement can be pleasurable and exciting, and that you can be part of a community of people doing this. And and it, it shows you that the past is different than the present, because humans have actively intervened into the world to change it. And the future can be different as well. And I think that All of those things are so important, and these are are the basic goals. These are the things we want to teach students. We want them to be critical thinkers. We want them to be engaged with the world. And increasingly, I do believe it's the mission of the university to create not just intellectual citizens, but global citizens and really engaged, community-oriented citizens. And science fiction can teach us all of these things. It teaches us how to talk to the alien other. It teaches us how to face disaster, like it, and and do something with it rather than curling up in a ball and and these are all great skills. and it's so easy, especially in a world where we're flooded by social media and we're constantly in these bubbles and these echo chambers where we just hear the same thing again and again and again from our friends, science fiction come come in like a, a breath of fresh air or maybe a breath of foul air depending on it, and force you to think outside of those boxes and bubbles that you've been in and and that's just, so fundamentally important, I think. Uh, So that's the main reason. And I think everyone can benefit from that. But I have to say, in particular, it's very useful to teach science fiction at a technological institute, because a lot of my students, they're the ones who are going to be building our scientific and technological future, and creating the public policy that generates our access or regulates our access to those sciences and technologies. And for those people to be able to think forward and to say what might the consequences be of these lines of development uh in the future that's really useful yeah and, i mean that's yeah i've uh, yeah.
0: i've heard a lot about kind of uh interesting like r&d departments of big tech yeah. firms hiring yeah. science fiction writers to help them yeah. imagine what a different yes. like world could be and i can really yeah. see that that being important yeah. because we yep. need inventors to be creative and, and to look at these exactly. kinds of things. Yeah,
1: Right, right. And and the trick is scientists themselves, right, they have to be careful about how they speculate and extrapolate because they have grants that are riding on the things they say. But it's still good to be able to think flexibly and come up with these new scenarios. And in fact, that's something we've been doing. We've been doing those kind of imagineering events at Georgia Tech. We just did one last year with our material science people where we brought in science fiction authors to work with the materials science and especially the nanotech people to think about like what might be new avenues of research. And that's so exciting. Um, I think the other thing is, and and like I said, um, if I can just tell one great anecdote, and this brings together gender into all of this as well. um, I had a, a, I had a number of students who've worked with me for the last five years on my last two books, and they've been helping me recover these artists. And Uh, One of them is a young woman who's majoring in biomechanical engineering, and she's graduating. So we went out to lunch to celebrate her graduation, and I asked what she was going to do with herself in the future. And she said, well, you know, I've just figured it out in the last few months, and I really, really, really want to go into reproductive technology. She's like, the state of reproductive technology is outrageous. She's like, devices and medicines for women are still based on male models of physiology. And she's like, and certainly no one's thinking about access to birth control for women in, who are impoverished in First Nations or living in other nations who might not have access to birth control. And she's like, I have to go work on this. And I was really surprised by her passion. I had just never heard her really talk like that before about her field or or anything. It was very exciting. And I said, wow, so where did this come from? And she said, well, it came from working with you for the last three years and reading 200 years of stories by women. And she's like, it finally hit me that if I, she's like, no one's going to take care of it. And so we sisters have got to deal with these things ourselves if we want different futures. And my heart just swelled up because that's exactly why we teach this stuff at the Institute is to get people to go out and build better futures.
2: That's a wonderful story. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Isn't that amazing? It gives you hope. (laughs) It really does. It really does. Yeah. What kind of
0: preconceptions do you have to sort of fight against when, when you people come across you and say you're studying science fiction or that you're teaching science fiction? Like, oh, yes.
1: <laughs> so there is, yes, the biggest preconception that you have to get through is the idea that anyone could do this, that it takes no specialized training. And in part, I get where that comes from because science fiction is such a global language and and it is true. You can talk to almost anyone from around the world and whether they like it or hate it, they've got an opinion about science fiction and they've got stuff to say. So people assume that because they've seen like two episodes of Star Trek and maybe an episode of the Orville um, and they went to a con with a, a girlfriend once that all of a sudden they're experts and that they can do what you do. And um, and that that can be frustrating because, you know, obviously there's a, a whole methodology and a discipline about what we do. We have methods for studying things. We have a critical terminology. Um, I was actually just encountered this at at the student level. Uh, We were prepping for an exam in my class. And one of the students said, well, there's a lot of terms here that we have to know. And I said, well, yeah, that's because you've done like a month and a half of work. And you've you've learned a lot here. And she said, well, which of these do I really have to know? And I said, well, you have to know every single one of them. And she looked at me and I said, if you were in your chemistry class, would you ask which equations you had to know and which ones you could ditch before you, like, (laughs) built a bomb? And she's like, oh, yeah, I guess that totally makes sense. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess it kind of does, doesn't it? So I think that this is and this is a challenge maybe for everyone in the humanities is that is that it's hard often for people in um, the sciences, for instance, uh, to understand that that we have methodologies that are indeed as uh, organized and, and useful and valid as their own. So that's been a big challenge. And then, of course, another challenge can be when you're working, um, talking with traditional literary people who don't know much about science fiction, and they just make really silly assumptions about the genre. Right, and and we see that, of course, not just with scholars but authors. And I think about someone like uh, Philip Roth claiming that he invented the alternate history. And you know, he wrote a perfectly nice alternate history, but I've got some news for him: he was not the first person to do that. So uh, I, I find that kind of amazing when literary people think that they invent the things that science fiction people invented a long time ago. Uh, huh? Ian McEwan, cough, cough. <laughs> yes, yeah. actually, I. I am on um I'm on a, a an award committee the John W Campbell Memorial Award Committee and when he said that you know we were all like ha 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 we should all make sure he makes it onto the list next year and see what happens <laughs> right because um, that's like the kind of thing that makes you want to put people on your science fiction list when they say I'm not writing science fiction you're like yeah you are <laughs> I am isn't Margaret Atwood these days she still doesn't admit she writes science fiction but she's going for speculative fiction she's she's moving back towards us so that's a good thing yeah
0: I always thought that was really bizarre that she was. She would put her stake in that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it has to do with I mean, you know, she came of age at at the same time as there were a number of authors in the 60s and 70s who um, came up really through science fiction, but then uh, were counseled by their um, publishers and their agents to not market as science fiction, because that would limit themselves. So Kurt Vonnegut did that too. And uh, Thomas Pynchon as well. In fact, when Thomas Pynchon won the Hugo or Nebula, I forget which it was probably the Nebula, he didn't go and get it. And that was very purposeful to distance himself from that. And I think Vonnegut may have done the same thing. So I I feel like she's kind of of that moment where um, I think she was worried about limiting her audience.
0: I mean, do you think that's still? kind of the case because i constantly when people say oh you're really interested in in reading and writing and oh but you like genre fiction oh well
1: yeah well obviously people still say that um although genre fiction is by far the most popular thing i mean look at the and hollywood most
2: profitable
1: <laughs> yeah it's gonna say look at the hollywood blockbuster list it's all genre stuff right um so, and maybe that's part of why people say it. They're like, oh, I don't want to be part of the capitalist machine or something. Or maybe they just really don't like to have fun. That's sad too. Um, but at the same time, we have wonderful champions now within the literary community, right? Um, so Jonathan Lethem um, has, has, and there's been a number of people who have made their names, Deji Bryce Olukaton, um, who are being considered literary authors, but who are have no problem slapping like hashtag Afrofuturist into their Twitter accounts, or editing science fiction volumes and sharing with people their excitement about science fiction. So I do think it's exciting that we're seeing that in a slight, you know, it's the generation below Atwood and Vonnegut and Pynchon, right? Or even two generations below. So maybe people more like our age, um, that it feels like people maybe came up through the postmodern moment, that moment where high and low get all mixed together through punk rock aesthetics, things like that, that uh, they're more comfortable with that kind of genre mixing
2: yeah this is only a good thing. this can only be a good thing to me because I'm just so tired of of hearing the you know the literary snobbery yeah.
1: directed
2: at. Uh, speculative fiction as if it's yeah. somehow some kind of like um, genre for the masses. Right. It's like mass market entertainment. It's sensationalism. Right. And you're just like, my God, there are bad books produced on both sides. You know, oh, yes, of course there are bad yes. books in science fiction. And of course right. there are bad books in literary fiction. But, you know, this there still seems to be this yeah. kind of bizarre divide, uh, particularly in the literary festivals over here. Right. I see it a lot. Like mm-hmm. very, very rarely do you get actual speculative fiction writers um, represented
1: yeah our big literary festival here has just started doing this and it's very interesting um and they they keep contacting me and some other local writers and they're like we don't know what to do how do we put this together so I think I'm seeing some hope I've had two different literary festivals now reach out to ask me how do you put together like stuff on speculative fiction and I think and I say well you invite people to come talk I don't know why this is so complicated um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or how you can't find them. Same. It's like get on the internet and Google science fiction authors near me. <laughs> they, they usually come right up. <laughs> um, but but at the same time, i'm I'm thrilled to offer advice and and guidance, and I'm excited to see something like that happening. I feel that um, academia is always a little bit behind the times on things, right? I wouldn't say academics are the most fashionable people in the world, but I am seeing a slight turn in literary publishing. And I say this based on my experience working with the Library of America. My last book, The Future Female, came out from Library of America, and they're a nonprofit organization dedicated to preserving and disseminating the quote-unquote best of American literary heritage. And historically, that's meant exactly what we're talking about, highbrow, canonical, mainstream literature, usually dead authors, too. Um, But recently, uh, they were telling me when the Library of America reached out to me to do editing, science fiction editing for uh, for them, that while most publishers right now, in the face of a pretty severe economic crisis, are shrinking their catalogs, they decided they were going to do the opposite, and they want to expand out and redefine American literature as including genre fiction. So they've been doing weird fiction and horror fiction, and now they've got three of us on board doing science fiction as well. So I think that that's hopeful, especially because uh, a place like the Library of America, they're the tastemakers in the United States. They pretty much set like what gets read at high schools and in colleges. So I think that that's optimistic. And maybe we're all going to get now more uh, more fantasy and more horror and more science fiction. So the things that people actually use to make sense of their lives.
0: Yes. I always never understood why literary fiction was always considered so much better in the sense that like, if you write speculative fiction, you have to be more imaginative. You're often coming yes. up with completely secondary worlds.
1: Yeah. How does right. that not mean make you like yeah. a really cool writer? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and you have to think about institutions, how big things change, like complicated things, right? Whereas mainstream fiction, right, especially since um, Henry James and and right is it's all been psychological realism, so it's always about being inside one individual's head. And it always seems to me like the big questions that these individuals ask in these books is like, do people love me and do I exist? And I just want to slap them. I'm like, there's a lot more important questions to be asking here. Like, why is my world crumbling down around me? Or how can I get to the moon too? Like, you know, I mean, maybe I guess just you have different priorities, but it does. It seems to me that the best science fiction, it has to do, it's like Ginger Rogers to Fred Astaire. It has to do all the same steps, but backwards in high heels which is also what women do in science fiction, I'd point out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think this is probably why uh, I I don't remember where the study was, but that they found that, you know, people who like to read uh, speculative fiction are more empathetic. It's probably because mm. we we like to think about these wider questions around the world than just, (gasps) uh, Oh, Oh, she loves me.
1: (laughs) Right. And also we are lucky that science fiction and fantasy are the two main genres that allow the other to speak, right? That, that these are genres predicated on meeting the weird and the alien and the other and the magical and the different and, and negotiating that. And it also like, it's not just about white guys or even white women or black women or green women meeting dragons, but sometimes the dragon gets to talk and sometimes Rumpelstiltskin gets to talk. And sometimes, you know, the bug eyed monster gets to tell the story instead, right? Mary Shelley gives us that all the way back to Frankenstein, right? The monster gets to say his speech, his piece. You might not like it, but he says it. and I think that that's also part of what teaches us like at its best it can teach us to listen to each other.
2: I feel like what other genre kind of offers that yeah than than science fiction I think mm-hmm. it uh, occupies you know a unique and essential place yeah. in
1: yeah. literature yeah well, fantasy for sure offers that as well, right because again you're dealing with the non-human and and sometimes mm-hmm. even the non-animate but Right. Outside the speculative genres, maybe horror, I guess, a little because you can talk to ghosts and things. Yeah. Beloved. Right. I'm thinking like Toni Morrison's Beloved or. Yep. So that does that, too. But the speculative genres. Right. I mean, I don't know that there are other ones that do the this. You know, I feel like mainstream literature is so focused on the human and Mm. in a world where we need to think about our connection to the animal and the technological and the geographical and all of that, uh, the cosmological. It just feels so limited to me. I was um, just interviewing Nancy Kress for an article I'm working on, and she was talking about how the first time she read science fiction, she had read Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood End, and she said it was the first time that I felt like a book had a big enough canvas to really capture my imagination. And I think that's the amazing thing about science fiction and fantasy. It's such a big canvas.
2: This is wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Anything (laughs) is possible.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. It is, right? As long as it's logical and well extrapolated. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: it's what my dad likes to say it has to have an internal kind of magic has to have uh i can't remember how he puts it he it's a rationale basically it's a logic
1: internal logic and then he's okay with it yes absolutely so it does have its own rules right like it can't all be sharknado but But at the same time there's room for sharknado right and and i think that's again the amazing thing about science fiction Because you got to have tornadoes with sharks and cybernetic women warriors. I mean, what's the point? Why not? Yeah. I've I've read interviews with the woman who stars in those movies. She loves doing them. She said the first one, she was really dubious. But then once she did it, she said it was like the most liberating thing in the world. And every movie, she loses a limb and it gets replaced with something cybernetic. And she said now it's at the point she's always so excited to find out what she's going to lose. Because she's like, the gain is always so much better. And it's like, that's so cool, right? So... Even something as silly as Sharknado opened her mind. I think that's great.
0: All right. Well, I think that's probably a good
1: point I to wrap gonna things
2: say, up. going to say, let's end on Sharknado. I mean,
0: yes. <laughs> it's amazing. But thank you so much for talking to us. It's been amazing. And it's, it's
1: uh,
0: yeah, it's great to talk to someone who's like as excited and, and, really wants to talk about this stuff as we we are.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, thanks so much, Megan and Lucy. I've had a great time chatting with you. And, you know, if you ever want to talk about all things feminist geek again, feel free to hit me up. I'd love to do so.
0: Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond, and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.